Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode, double digit, breaking barriers, leaping into the unknown, crushing the podcast game, extravaganza special of They Made Another One, where each week we study an often forgotten installment in a franchise and see how it holds up all on its own. I'm one of your double digit hosts, Corey. And I'm your other double digit host, Liam. And this week, we will be discussing the Christopher Kane-directed 1994 film, The Next Karate Kid, which is a bad title for your movie. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it should have a question mark and an exclamation point at the end. eh? That should be like the litmus test for if a movie can be covered on this podcast. If you say it with the inflection and it would make sense in a conversation, you know. The next Karate Kid? Yeah, it's like if you, if you synthesize the title of our show into like a movie title, this is probably what you would get. Um, totally. It sounds like that, or it sounds like something somebody would say while shrugging and rolling their eyes. Like I can picture somebody, somebody's meeting a friend and in the background, they can see like Hillary Swank, like karate chopping a wooden board. And they go, oh, who's that? And they just go, oh, that's the next Karate Kid. We don't, we don't talk about it. And... Uh, um, speaking of, this movie stars Hilary Swank, Pat Morita, Michael Ironside, Chris Conrad, and Michael Cavalieri, which is a pretty fun one. And it came a good couple years after the end of the original Karate Kid trilogy. Um, and this movie is also known as the Karate Kid Part 4, but there's no real, like, meaningful connection to those movies so i think that was just to make sure that people weren't like confused with that liam what is your experience with the karate kid as like a franchise uh no experience i haven't seen any of the karate kid movies i know that at the end of the first one daniel son sweeps the leg uh no he doesn't that's all that's it no the guy doesn't the guy want to sweep his leg and he like crane kicks him because I think the Cobra Kai guy want, is told to sweep the leg, but you're technically not allowed to sweep the leg. Makes sense to me, man. <laughs> um, well, if that didn't give me away, um, I also don't really have like a strong attachment to the Karate Kid franchise. Um, I I know about it in that like cultural osmosis way, where like I've seen like the clip of the end of that movie, and I know like the big moments and there's like a chance i have seen it because like it's a thing people end up seeing but i i don't know for sure if i have like i've ever properly sat down and watched it and um i also don't have any familiarity with the sequels or the reboot that came in 2010 or whatever or the reboot that is currently on youtube (laughs) for anybody who's not like super current what i mean there was like a Karate Kid movie that starred Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan as, like, your Daniel surrogate and your Miyagi surrogate. And then, right now, there's, like, an ongoing Cobra Kai YouTube Originals series, which is, like, effectively a TV show. And I don't know anything about those, really, either. So, I guess we're coming in fairly fresh to this, which is kind of surprising. Um, not that we haven't done that before with, like, well-beloved franchises on this show. And I think that's what made the next Karate Kid like a really interesting choice because it wasn't that far removed from the Karate Kid 3. It was just like it was five years after that. That was 1989. This is 1994. And it's weird because it's not that far apart, but it has completely nothing to do with that. 
Like there are passing references to um Miyagi's like previous relationship with like Daniel and that's pretty much it. Like your only real connective tissue here is um Mr. Miyagi just existing. And aside from mm-hmm. that, like we have Julie who is our new protagonist here played by Hilary Swank before she won like Academy Awards and stuff and did like million dollar baby and whatever. So I guess with that out of the way, establishing that we don't have really much of anything to go off of here. Liam, what did you think of the next Karate Kid? Why don't you go first on this one, Corey? I'm really curious to hear what you have to say. I want you to take the lead. We're breaking formula here. Uh, Strap in, folks. (laughs) Ten episodes in and we're we're going completely off the rails. Um, I generally liked it. Generally or genuinely? Both. I think both. I'd say both to that. I would definitely stop my positivity at the word liked, if you know what I mean. Like, I didn't love it. I don't think it's great. Some of it aged really weird. Some of it just is really weird. Um, But I think the biggest thing for me is, like, the performances are weirdly good, especially from Pat Morita and Hilary Swank. I suppose that shouldn't be a shock. They're, like, award-winning actors. Like, it's really not that surprising. Um, But it manages to elevate some occasionally kind of weak and weird material. And I'm sure it manages to elevate some of the repetition because I know like there's like a wax on wax off sequence and things like that that are like, yeah, I know that this is from those other Karate Kid movies. So I could imagine for somebody at the time, it might be a little bit like, yeah, OK, we get it. But um, I'll just dive into this now. Uh, we just discussed Back to the Future Part 3, and I thought that my biggest problem with that was that so it was retreading a lot of the same ground as the other two movies but it had sort of shifted its emotional focus from Marty to Doc and in a way that doesn't really connect because you're less attached to Doc Brown's love life as you are Marty's sort of like trying to keep his family together and like just maintain the shitstorm that he's caused um whereas I feel like here there's definitely going to be repetition in you know the structure and the plot beats because you know it's still Mr. Miyagi is like teaching someone karate and along the way they're learning like life lessons and self-worth and things like that but a combination of the performances and some shifting of what those character archetypes are kind of like makes it just kind of sweet and nice and work on its own I feel like Julie is a very real feeling like shitty angsty frustrated upset teenager who just like is sick of everybody's shit because they're going through a difficult time and is projecting that outwards and i really liked how over time she kind of softens up and miyagi is able to sort of help her realize that you know you're struggling but like there's valuable things to gain from that and you can sort of channel that into things that aren't being angry And I also think that Pat Morita manages to elevate a lot of dialogue that at times feels really reductive. I can't speak to the first movies in terms of how what they do in handling like Asian material and Asian actors. And I don't know if there's like a running theme of it being sort of like weirdly mystical, like kind of orientalist, like caricaturizing of that. And there are moments here where it feels like they're just giving, like, Miyagi, like, a wise man shtick, which kind of sucks. But there 
are far more moments, I think, later on when it becomes less about that and more about just an older, more experienced person handing life lessons on that manages to remove it a bit from just the, like, almost feeling like a token thing or, like, like almost like something you would read out of a fortune cookie because there's definitely some, like, eye-rolling ass dialogue. Like, one of the first things he says is, Miyagi is rice man, remember? And it's like, mm-hmm. yikes, dude. Like, this is how we want to, this is the foot we want to step on. All right. But I think as their relationship develops, it, it feels like it gets away from that a little bit. Um, I think there are still certainly points where they're juxtaposing, like, the monks and things like that with Western stuff as a bit of a goof. And we can get into that later. But none of it feels, to me, someone who's not Asian as, like, outrageously offensive uh, which was good because I was definitely concerned going into it. But I think that to sort of wrap up my my opening thoughts here, that that sort of core relationship really does give the movie a lot to work with. And it kind of compensates for the weird, weird, weird choices the movie makes with its antagonists. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, but, you know, with that out of the way, what did, what did you think of it? How does that jive with what you thought? So I thought this movie, um, it certainly felt like the Karate Kid part four not having seen the other three it felt like a story i've seen a lot of times before just in terms of like coming of age uh yeah. sports movies but so it, it felt like the the story i imagine karate kid part one to be but just having been done three times over and this is sort of something we saw with Airbud once we learned that the you know, four preceding Airbud movies, five preceding Airbud movies, whatever it was, had very similar stories, and that that upset you because it had been done so many times over. And um, that Airbud four movie, because that was the only one I had seen, I thought it was really charming, and um, I liked the good stuff because it was the first time I had seen that stuff, and. I would relate to that to this experience, except I didn't find good stuff to like. It, it felt like it was just um, the, the story had been told so many times over, three times over now, that there was just nothing really left to say. And it felt like it was going through the motions, um, which I think is concerning for, for me, for someone who hasn't seen the other three, that it still kind of felt so by the numbers um i'm with you that i thought mr miyagi felt super uh token and trite in the beginning of the movie and as the movie went on i did warm up to him as a character yeah and he it it gets better but it never completely goes away totally and i think that's that's my biggest problem with this movie is that it gets it, it kind of finds its footing as it goes along, but then it, it, it ends way too early to actually not even stick the landing, but just kind of to get the run going in order to in order to get up to that landing. You know what I mean? Like it it starts to figure it out and then it ends. So it's almost like the figuring it out wasn't even worth it anyway because it didn't lead to anything. Um, Hillary Swank and her character was... Um, I just I just thought the writing was so poor almost all the time. She definitely is angsty and uh I can see myself in her, so I don't think it's an unrealistic character. I just don't think 
I don't think it's an, a character that's entertaining to watch in the first half, which is fine because, of course, that's the case that we're trying to set us up for that character to come of age. But because I don't think the movie sticks any sort of landing, I don't I don't feel that growth. So I was frustrated by her. I think the antagonists are a big problem oh, in this movie. I think um, not having seen the first movie, a really cool part of that is um, that the the villain's story is um, a kid, and it's someone who, um, from my understanding, is is being controlled by a higher up and is sort of just being manipulated and coached like Daniel is, but he's mm-hmm. being coached by a bad person. And I think that's interesting, whereas in this movie, it feels a lot more... Um, I don't know. I don't know what was going on with this antagonist story. It feels like it's like 1984 or like. Yeah, there's a reason I, I, I didn't talk about the antagonist in my like opening thoughts. Um, yeah. It's because like there was enough that I thought was positive about the movie and my like watching experience that I wanted to lead with that. But um, it's fucking insane. It's complete. Like it's deranged. There to to set this up quick before we get into like plot stuff because this is important. This high school has... So, Michael Ironside is playing a character named Colonel Dugan, who may or may not be former military. Like, we don't know why they call him that. And um, there's this group of students on campus who are part of this, like, team. And they all wear black, and they do, like, karate in the yard, and they're just, like, all really shitty. But they all exist within this paradigm that is, like, a top-down structure where this guy is like king and he wants them to like use their anger as fuel to fight off wars and enemies domestically with maximum response and it's this really nightmarish like very like fascistic really gross group of people who were like emboldened to hurt perceived others through anger <laughs> and it really sucks and i don't know why that's what they wanted their antagonist to be and i i can't decide if that is a bit of a relic of its time or it's just an insane writing decision it is a strange choice it kind of feels to me like the 1990 teenage mutant ninja turtle movie um you know where the foot clan is uh just these kids who are being taught martial arts and shredder is at the top of them and uh, leading them on and, and getting these kids to do his bidding. It feels like like maybe that was a 90s trope or something, but whereas that movie has this sort of These strong... characters don't feel like... like they. I don't want to like... It's a, it's, a, it's a joke on the internet to like jump to this bit that I'm about to say, but like they feel like Nazis. <laughs> like, yeah. It's yeah. super overblown, and it's like never explained like who they are or why they exist it's just like a group this school has and they're really belligerent and they like basically terrorize everybody like they bungee jump into a prom as like a hazing ritual like it's off the like ned our antagonist like is prepared to throw somebody off a roof at one point like it's completely off the rails yeah and Um, whereas the rest of the movie feels super by the numbers and contained. And, you know, I've seen stuff like this before, uh, this, this antagonist situation made me feel like I had missed something in maybe like part three Mm -hmm. that sets this up because Mm -hmm. it's so out of left field. But by the time the movie was over, it was clear that this was specific to this movie, but also that this movie 
had no um, intentions to explain it or deal with it at all. Yeah, and it's a weird it's a weird thing to have that completely lacks setup because the established antagonisms from that group are the thing that kind of fuel the end of the movie. It's like it's getting back at them because you've learned about yourself and because you have like newfound confidence as well as newfound physical ability and you're able to mobilize that in a positive way against a negative group. But it all feels so overblown. Like when they arrive at that dock for that confrontation and they blow up a car and there's mm-hmm. like flaming barrels and it feels like Escape from New York. And it's like, how is this a movie about a high school girl finding self-worth via karate how did we get here to watching her underwritten boyfriend get beat up by like a gang of thugs yeah the first half of the movie and the second half are really in stark contrast and that can be pulled off in some movies where you know you got to sit through the first two acts and then you get to the third act and stuff hits the fan and it gets crazy but this movie um because the the clan is in the first half of the movie and you're questioning what's going on for that entire first half i think that first half is kind of ruined by the setup for what's going to happen in that second half but then the second half it doesn't feel like it's delivered with enough like conviction or vision that the movie was building up to this point it just it feels really mechanical um, and clinical. It's it's difficult to explain, but it's just it was hard for me to um, to believe in any yeah. of the stuff that was going oh, on here. Certainly, and I think I kind of already want to rephrase something that I said earlier. What I was like, I think I more I like things in this movie, but now that we've really laid this out, um, because it's been a couple days since I saw it, so I think I was remembering the positive stuff a little bit better. Um, I definitely think these weird issues are enough to take away from the viewing experience in a pretty dramatic way. Um, I found I was able to focus on that core relationship a bit better, but this stuff is really off the rails in a way that just, it's really bizarre. And, you know, to get into a bit of a plot synopsis quick, um, the military angle here, which I'm really only calling it that because this guy is Colonel Dugan, Like, that's just what they call him. So, seemingly, there's a military angle here. It's established in the beginning because the whole reason that Mr. Miyagi is in Boston, which is where they are, is for um, a military celebration of the Japanese-American soldiers who participated in World War II on behalf of the American government. So, there's an opening with, like, drums and, and brass and music and, like, a salute and, like, a discussion of how, like, even though the Japanese were interned at home japanese americans were interned that like they still fought valiantly for the american army in this in the war and like deserve recognition for that even all these years later and that's how we establish miyagi's relationship to julie is because her grandfather and miyagi fought together in the war and she was raised by her grandparents because her parents died which is a pretty convoluted attachment for that um and it's just an inch it's a really it's a choice you know well they just they need to get miyagi on to the next karate kid right yeah and you know after that um miyagi is invited home by julie's grandmother and 
during that meal that they're having, Julie comes in in a huff and there's like an argument and it's a very like movie teenager argument where she's just like, ugh, like everything's dumb. Like, I don't care. Like, you don't give a shit. Go away. Like, it's a very dramatic and theatrical argument. Is this the one where she says my mother and father were killed in a car accident? I'm just fine. It might be. Yeah, there's definitely some points where like... The movie's pretty underwritten in a lot of those scenes. So a lot of the like argument dialogue is is pretty bad. The thing that I have written down which comes just after this is uh she just says to her falcon which I will explain uh mm-hmm. things wouldn't be so messed up if my parents weren't dead. And it's like, yep, that's yep. how people talk for sure. Um and anyway, so it's established that her grandma is just like fucking done with julie shit basically and um miyagi's like yo do you want to go live at my house in california for a while and i'll stay here and i'll babysit julie and her grandma's like hell yeah dude let's go so they bring her to the airport and now you know miyagi's in charge and it's kind of established that he can sort of read the situation that like this is somebody who needs some kind of guidance um, because we've, we've established a couple things about Julie aside from just being like angry at the world, which is that, um, she sneaks out at night and, um, goes to the roof of her high school where she is caring for a falcon with a broken wing in a coop or shed style thing that a janitor used to keep birds in. And I, you know, that's there to give Julie some <laughs> yeah, something to talk to yeah something to talk to but also just like a bit more virtue than she's established as having because she's just kind of yeah. comes in and if like you left her there she'd be like one-dimensional shitty teen but like yeah. it's to illustrate that like she's caring and thoughtful and like capable of these things but lacks the guidance that miyagi would otherwise provide and the other thing that's established here aside from like that she cuts class and like doesn't give a shit about things is um this this relationship with um this group of weird thugs and the one that's important for us is is named Ned which is not an intimidating name for that character to have and they have the lamest reveal of all time which is it's like a shot of a high school hallway and it's just like you can see them coming and you just see like oh. okay we got black shoes okay we yes. got really light washed jeans and it's just some guys and some tucked in black t-shirts and they're supposed and to be our bad guys for so long and i think it, cu- it cuts right before you see their face <laughs> though so it's like okay it's waiting long enough so that we can see their face okay like that's a weird decision but let's do it and then it cuts like right when you get to their chest you know it's terrible yeah and then and then so julie is cutting class and then from that reveal they cut to Julie's in the foreground and then Ned walks through the background in a different hallway and then enters the room from the other side of the frame. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, he's there and he's being weirdly like possessive and abusive, like pretty much immediately and is making unwanted advances. And we have no basis for this relationship at all. Like we, yeah, we yeah, don't know totally. why he has any interest in Julie. We don't know why he's pursuing it so hard um we don't know how he knew she was there and we don't know what he gets out of lying because what he says is that julie was caught smoking which basically like 
puts her on thin ice with the school because Ned is like the sweetheart of that group. Basically he's like Colonel Dugan's protege and they clearly have a lot of power and sway in this institution for some reason. And, um, he lies to Colonel Dugan and then that gets her put on like a one strike and you're out of here. And then she's given an escort to her next class for some reason by Eric. And, uh, you know, Eric is the good one because he's not wearing a black shirt. Um, and he has brown hair because that's how hair. symbolism works yeah. and um they kind of start off and eric's trying to get like a sense for kind of what julie's like and gets confronted by ned and is like how'd that go and he's like oh i'm fine what actually happened is she sneaks out of the bathroom to get away from eric and ned and then there's a romantic music cue as ned as eric enters the women's bathroom oh, follows so her out the window and walks onto the roof and it's like hey movie this is not romance yeah like, have you ever seen uh have you ever seen two girls one cup no no do you remember when that was a thing 2007 yeah, but, 2008 okay i okay, can't well, wait for you to see where this is going just, listeners you guys remember two girls one cup the music cue when he enters the washroom sounds exactly <laughs> like that that's the music cue that's playing that's it's really awful i could i had no idea what was about to happen in this bathroom that's a that's a connection i don't like at all and anyway so eric follows her to the roof uh and meets the bird and um whose name is angel uh, and he's weirdly shitty about it. Like, he's not shitty in, like, the overt, abusive way that Ned is. But she's like, yo, please don't tell anybody about my fucking bird. And he's like, oh, I might. And then she's like, no, like, dude, promise you won't. Like, what the fuck? And he's like, oh, but what if I did? And he's, like, playing coy, but in a way that's not charming. I think Eric uh, grows yeah. to be mildly charming later in, like... Uh, an aloof way when he like goes mm. to pick her up for the prom and he's just kind of like handsome guy but like he doesn't play coy well and it just makes it seem like julie's just still being like harassed absolutely um, um by it's, the time it's gross prom, like julie goes through a lot of shit in this movie that's like really fucking gross yeah by the time we get to the um, I don't care how charming he was being. I hadn't forgiven him for stuff like stuff like this earlier in the movie. And there's also a scene where he's um, working on top of a train and he's walking along the train. Is this the are you going to miss me thing? And he's yes. And he's talking to Julie and Julie is about to go away to like the monk uh, commune with Miyagi. And um, and he says, uh, are you going to miss me? And she doesn't say it explicitly, and he says, no, you have to tell me you're going to miss me. I'm not going anywhere until, Here, here's you, until the thing. you tell me. Here, can, I, can I say something? Yeah. If this movie had built out that, ra that relationship more before this scene, this scene works, I think. I think if there's more to, if there's more depth to this and we understand that, like, Julie and Eric are showing interest and had seen more of them together, this could be kind of cute. And it's not. <laughs> it's just kind of weird. It's not at all. It, no, it, it has the potential to be that, but it just feels kind of bad. And anyway, yeah, so I guess um, there's uh, Miyagi is trying to, like, give some structure to, like, her life and wants, like, Julie to go to school and stuff. And it's not really happening in the way that they think it should. And so, like, they're all on campus to go, like, pick her up from school. And there's, like... There's like a bull ring is what Colonel Dugan describes it as um, in the front, like 
on the grass and he's like telling all of his like really jacked clearly not teenage students that um like these are just like giant meathead guys it's great and um that's the one thing that i kind of like is that these are all just clearly not people in that would attend the high school that's a big problem the movie has when ned <laughs> makes his first appearance i was trying to figure out Ned looks um, like he's like he's... in his mid to late 20s i was yeah i was trying to figure out if he was a student a teacher or like an escaped <laughs> convict and like, like he, he... And eric doesn't look quite as old but he's huge like he's far 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 bigger than a high school student should be no yeah he also looks 40 and he... like it looks like it looks like both of them shaved right before the scene. <laughs> yeah, Ned's but they got already like have five o'clock shadow. shadow. <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh, so they establish this bullring thing that comes up later, which is just Dugan is in the middle of the circle. And he has a bunch of, for all intents and purposes, youths attack him, and he just attacks them back, like physically, mm -hmm. like he's like punching them and throwing them and shit, and that's gross too, because like even if these actors look older they're not for the sake of the yeah. movie right so it's really bizarre and then miyagi basically tries to give him like a life lesson i forget specifically what he says but it's in the token kind of way it's some sort of like bit of like sage eastern wisdom which is too much of miyagi's dialogue i think we can get into that a little bit later um but for every moment that feels like more of a genuine life lesson they're providing julie there's a lot of stuff that he says that is just like a parable basically you say miyagi says a life lesson that i don't remember because by the end of this movie i was convinced that the only reason they were making this movie is because uh you know the actor who plays mr miyagi is still alive and we want him to give out a few more lessons for the audience and um but he's just throwing so much stuff at the wall that, oh i wrote down what uh, he said actually you know only maybe 10 percent of it or less is going to stick and and by the end of it i was just i was just thinking that mr miyagi should have written a book and and that w should be what we had gotten instead I mean, I of the next some of karate kid because that's really the only stuff i was enjoying in this movie i just don't get why that's all he has to say is like parables and snippets and things like that because, like, I feel like with more substantive dialogue, he could still get, like, these points across without it feeling like they felt like they had to write a quote-unquote Asian guy somehow. Yeah, well, I'm wondering if this is what he was like in the first Karate Kid. Because at this point, to me, coming in four movies in, it feels like it's a parody of whatever he would have been. But maybe this is what he's been like from the beginning, and it's just lost his charm or i've seen it parodied so much that to see the real thing feels like a goof you know the first time i ever saw scream i had already seen scary movie five or ten times and it was hard to take it seriously so maybe that's the issue here but it, yeah mr miyagi didn't have the depth that i thought he would and like i said it, it became a bit charming as the movie went on and i was able to latch on but it was really really jarring at first to hear that that's really all he was doing the movie doesn't really have the depth the movie needs right like the whole thing feels like underwritten even like montages because like you know you got to get those classic training montages in they feel short and underwritten like it's very bizarre um after that like encounter at the school julie leaves with eric and they go to like the train yard and i'm only mentioning that because it's just eric talking about his future and it doesn't it doesn't really factor in um other than because colonel dugan is like important to his like future plans but 
there's a really, really incredible shot that I really like that I want to point out because otherwise this movie is pretty much technically unremarkable, but there's a couple shots in it I think are really good. But basically, so they start at the bottom of a train and then they climb up the train and they're sitting on it and it the camera's really low angle, like looking up at them. So you just see Sky and them sit them sitting on a train. And then as they start talking about like the future and things that they might do later and whatever, the camera very slowly pa- like pans up or tilts up. Um, and there's less and less Sky and they become a little bit more even. And they're just in like the bottom right corner at first. And then as it tilts up, it tilts up. You get like the whole city skyline in the back and these other trains. And it's just like a very beautiful shot. And I like it a lot want to give the movie some credit where it's due here um no I'm, I'm totally with you i that was actually my favorite scene of the movie I yeah that, that scene was, works that was like, really beautiful it had a chance to breathe it 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 was the sort of discussion i like in coming of age movies where you kind of just give kids a chance to be kids not in a cliche sense but just kind of linger on the thoughts that kids have about where they are now and what's coming up next it, it feels sort of stand by me ish and yeah. i thought that was I thought that was awesome, despite the fact that she was talking to a 40-year-old man. (laughs) Um, Well, and it helps kind of set up Julie's, like, aimlessness and frustration a bit more because she's, like, echoing it to somebody, like, a peer and not just, like, yelling at an adult about it. But after they get back... a bird. Yeah, almost right after that scene, we learned that Julie already knows karate. Yep. Um, Yep. Which was a development I wasn't expecting. Uh, So, Julie is arguing with Miyagi and runs out of the house and she almost gets hit by a pizza delivery guy who I felt very bad for because he felt really bad about that. And um, she jumps onto a car into tiger position. Um, I'm assuming that's a real thing. I don't know. So if it's not, I'm sorry. But Miyagi says, where did you learn to jump into tiger position? Um, mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, I just know it. And then they kind of have a sweet moment because you know she got taught by her dad and we learn that Miyagi, as a thanks for like wartime camaraderie, taught her grandpa karate, who taught her dad karate, who taught her karate. And I, as ridiculous writer bullshit that is, I really like how full circle that comes. And they just kind of have a sweet moment where they kind of talk about her missing her parents. And it feels more emotionally vulnerable than she's allowed to have been up to this point because a lot of everything else has felt very like, I'm just angry but they kind of get into a little bit more. So you're starting to get a bit more of that relationship developing um, as far as I'm concerned. And th- but then it immediately pivots to like, he's literally waxing a car wax on wax off style. And they have an argument where she wants to learn karate. He wants her to do homework as payment. And she says, no. And she's like, I just want to go to the mall. And it's like, Oh, do you have gas? And it's like, no. And it's this weird, just like, Oh man, girls are crazy. And it's like, why are we being reductive about Julie again? Like, I mean, Julie's allowed to like makeup in the mall, but it's like, you just have like a nice emotional moment and then you're just doing this shit. Yeah. It feels, um, really confused because the idea that she already knows karate kind of made me roll my eyes at first, right when she jumps onto this car, because I'm thinking, okay, this movie is a redux of all the other karate kid movies, but it doesn't want to spend time having, our character learn how to do karate from scratch because we've seen that so much and we kind of we want to just skip that point um 
And so it feels like it's building off the goodwill the first couple movies established, and we're just going to jump to this character already knowing karate. And at the end of the movie, I don't even think her already knowing karate pays off because it's not like she does what Daniel's son did, except like 10 times better because she already knew karate. Like, we don't get to see her doing anything well, wicked. The problem, you know what I mean? Well, like we kind of do and i will say i want to preface this with on the wikipedia page there's a note that says that like hillary swank had an easier time learning the flashy moves than the beginner stuff with the choreographer i wonder if that factored into that at all is like she was just good at the hard stuff so they made her already know the easy stuff so they could jump to the hard stuff i don't know um i just think that's that's an interesting note i think what what takes the wind out of the sails of Ju- uh, Julie's karate development and how that parallels with personal development is she's not given the final moment of the movie. And the message of the final moment of the movie is reductive toward Miyagi's like, fighting is unfortunate, you're learning this as a means of self-worth and self-confidence, not just being able to kick somebody's ass. Mm-hmm. Um, it really undercuts it. Yeah, so before they go to that um, monastery, there's another interaction with Ned, which I think really encapsulates that this movie had no idea what to do with these bad guys, because it's really gross. So Julie is going back to the school. So she goes to the school at night to like feed the bird and like care for the bird, and she has to sneak in. And for some fucking reason... Because last time she did this, like, the cops spotted her, but she got away. Ned and his goons somehow heard that the cops said it was a girl. He knew it would be Julie, and they staked out the school after hours waiting for her. And then she shows up, and there's an encounter, and there's, a there's like, a chase. And it's really weird so, like, she's being chased through this school by, like, a gang of dudes that look like they're 40 in all-black outfits. And, um, she goes and, like, hides in the cafeteria, and it's dark, and Ned is doing, like, some super villain shit monologue. And she's hiding under, like, a metal table, and he's, like, throwing chairs around and screaming. Like, it's super... Yeah, and he's using her name a lot, right? Yeah, Sounding it's super archetypal, archetypical, like abuser behavior and it's really it's this whole thing is genuinely harrowing like yeah my heart was racing i thought this was really creepy and intimidating actually i Um, thought this part was was awesome awesome's not the word i would use because it doesn't feel appropriate it feels like it makes the stakes like really high so he's like throwing chairs around and shit and she tries to run away, and she's trying to climb up the stairs, and he, like, reaches through and, like, grabs and, like, tries to, like, pull her back down the stairs. And it's like, this is a nightmare. And I don't know if it's made worse by the fact that he looks old, but, like, it's really some shit, dude. Oh, no, like, dude, I thought, it, I thought it was great, because here's the thing, I'm not enjoying any of the finality of the rest of the movie, and so... I would much rather have a scene that doesn't feel tonally consistent, which the rest of the movie, which it totally didn't. I'm with you there. It doesn't feel appropriate at all. And 
in terms of the context, um, it, it doesn't feel right because I still don't even have a grasp on who this guy is. Yeah. And I don't know why Julie has to go through her. something this extreme just to establish that they suck. Of course, yeah, yeah, of course. But because I'm just not into what came before and it turns out I'm not into what came after because this tone doesn't keep up, I'd rather have a two-minute sequence that I can dig just as something that gets me invested and is actually invoking a reaction from me. In a horror movie, that sequence would be really good because that's effectively what it is. Yeah. It's very it's very weird. And to long story short, the rest of that cuz she gets out by as she he's like grabbing her leg on the stairs. Um she triggers the fire alarm, but that means that she's found at the school again and is given a suspension for not behaving. And Miyagi is like, "Well, here's my moment. I'm going to take you to um a Buddhist monastery." And then on their way there again, they stop at like a weird old gas station. And they do some weird shit where Miyagi is able to calm down a dog just by walking in. And for some reason, that makes the people in the gas station upset. And they become, like, weirdly antagonistic and, like, grabby with Julie again. And I don't yeah. know why the movie keeps doing that. Um, and then Miyagi has to fight them. And he's like, well, that fucking sucks. Like, don't condone fighting, but sometimes you have to. But, like, I don't know why that's even there. Right? Just to prove that Miyagi's still got it, I guess, but, like... I guess, yeah, because... But, like, I'm you could have done that earlier throughout in the movie, most of the movie when he's talking to Dugan. Like, you could have done that earlier, and it didn't need to be this weird fucking gas station thing. That's also got, like, a weirdly, um, sinister tone. Like, I don't know why they're doing this. Yeah, I had no idea if we were supposed to, uh, if we were going to see Miyagi throw down in this movie. I wasn't sure if it was sort of like a silent Bob in like Clerks thing where we're just waiting for his moment near the end of the movie. So this scene did surprise me that we were seeing him in action in the middle of the movie. And we see we too see much it. of Miyagi in action, honestly. Yeah, I, th I think so too. Way I think too so much. too. I think it would have been better if they had held off on it and we just got a moment near the end, you know, where he. He finally uh, does something. Yeah, and then um, if at all. So, and then we get a good full second act, like thirty minute ish stretch of the movie spent at this monastery, and that's exactly what you think it is, um, because there's the moments where she arrives and doesn't understand like the cross cultural differences, um, and it's sort of learning to navigate those and understanding why like her behavior doesn't jive with their ideals and how she can sort of learn new things thread that needle there's a moment with like she attempts to kill a cockroach and then everybody gets upset and then she's told that like you know like there's a respect for the sanctity of life of all life inside of a buddhist monastery and she kind of thinks about it and then there's a a great shot of her and like this big meadow of purple and she and it's all very tall and she like barely sticks out of it she like grabs a praying mantis and like brings it back over and she's like okay so she respects life now i guess um <laughs> is, is what and we that was uh, a bit confusing for me for her to get that through her head because for a girl who loves an eagle so much you'd think she'd understand the yeah they had, they had set up that she was that she already understood that kind of yeah and so they really they really have to insist on it and she gets this moment and let's keep in mind that eagles it's a raptor type bird and those types bir type of birds like physically can't form emotional bonds so she's talking to it's something a falcon that, not an eagle she, a falcon yeah and she so she's talking to something that that doesn't give a fuck 
And oh, that's sad. And then, <laughs> oh man, I feel, <laughs> I feel even worse for Julie she now. She doesn't get it at all. It's 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 uh, awful. Yeah. Um. And anyway, so we get that, and we get like your kind of standard training montage stuff. So there's a rock garden, and there's two rocks that are meant to represent Japan and Okinawa. And um, she does like a like a jumping spin kick from one onto the other, and that's the cool move that she learns. And then you also kind of get the other moments where um it's like you know learning to rely less on just like raw emotion and more on your senses and like they like hit like being aware of like sandbags and stuff and being able to block and like do hits and they like do training and it's all it's a it's a training montage like i don't know what else to really say about that but spliced in between our moments like with the monks that are more about like making ideological realizations of like person in a personal growth sense in kind of the same way that like Miyagi is a walking parable machine um some of which I think are fun some of which are just kind of weird but there's also like a moment where she's playing music like one of her things is like well she's a teen so loud music and she's in like this like temple room with like a statue of buddha in there and starts blasting a song that i know i know but i don't remember what it is do you know what that song is no no Fuck. i didn't know that i one. know i know the song I'll, I'll try to make sure i look up the song by the end of the episode um but then the monks just dance and um miyagi says never trust a spiritual leader that doesn't dance and that's it and then they leave and they go home yeah, and man, does this 30 minutes slow down the movie because we don't jump back at all to her school and what the we antagonists do. It's just, are doing. It's just very, very quick, and it's about Eric. Yeah, yeah, we just get Eric. And, and why, so it why, just... They haven't set up enough that she would care enough, other than the fact that Eric is caring for the bird, to pretend to be his mom to get a call through. The only reason that we have that scene at all is to establish that Eric is willing to part ways with this group because he's, like, a more morally sound person than them. Um, but, like, is that how far along they are in their, like, potential relationship that this is just, like, where we're at? I mean, I guess. Um, the only redeeming thing of that is there's one great shot in there, which is because they were, like, standing at attention outside, and Eric goes inside to answer the phone, and he's on the left side of the frame on the phone, and in the reflection of the window down at the bottom, you can see them still standing, and I thought that was cool. But like narratively, it's like, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah, go ahead. No, that's 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 it, dude. Narratively, what the fuck are we doing? I was feeling that for most of the movie. Yeah, and then you know, and then this last third is a tonal wreck. It's like a twelve-car tone pileup. Uh, so she comes back. She's hanging out with Eric. They're having a nice time. They seem like they're getting along. Which is nice, because, you know, it's nice when people get along. I don't know, man. And um, they go to check on the bird, and Ned follows them up there and somehow knows about the bird and literally threw the bird in a dumpster, I think is what they say. Is it animal control? Was the dumpster thing a joke? Either way, they get rid of the bird. Ned and Eric fight um, in a nice moment for Julie. She tries to get them to not fight, which I guess is them starting to, like, get to, like, she learned something. She also just seems kind of happier when she's back. There's less of that, like, underlying anger. But, like, Ned literally is prepared to throw Eric off the roof of the school. Um, but And then once they get the bird back, Miyagi's like, look, man, you don't actually know if that bird can't fly still. So, like, maybe we'll try to get rid of it. And that's another, like, personal growth moment where they're like, oh, you can let things go and things can be free and whatever. 
And then they establish there's a dance and Miyagi goes to buy her a dress, which is a great scene because it's fucking nuts. <laughs> like, and it's a weird tonal shift from like weird rooftop fight, personal growth moment, comedic relief of Miyagi buying a dress because he can't describe her physically. He can only describe her in terms of like her karate prowess. Yeah. Um, but I will admit, despite my complaints here, it's still kind of a sweet gesture, and it's one of the things that I like about their relationship is that karate is sort of a surrogate to get toward just, like, nice, um, in some cases, parental moments, but also just, like, emotional moments of her, like, working through trauma. And, like, after this, um, he gets her address and it works out, but then he says that he's going to show her, like, a new karate move. But what he's actually showing her how to do is is dance because she doesn't know how. And like you kind of you get a sense where it's like this seems like a weird karate move. Like, I don't know why we're here. And then you realize that it's a dance. And I thought that was really touching and nice. <laughs> so like this yeah. movie has flashes of like, this is nice. Um, That's, yeah, it, it is cute. I mean, a broken clock is right twice a day. I would say million... this movie's right about <laughs> twice. Yeah. Yeah, a million uh, monkeys and a million typewriters. You're gonna get something good eventually. It's just, I, I, I'm with you. I do like the idea that karate is just something they share, and it's, and it's something that uh, they can it, teach each other through. That's really because they're learning other things about life. And I don't. I'm sure yeah. like the other movies do that, but the other movies also seem more because they're more masculine. It does seem more about like in the sense that like it's Daniel. It seems more about like now we're gonna teach this dude to kick ass. But he'll do it with, like, a moral grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as the tonal train wreck continues, their monk friends come to visit. And as Eric picks her up for this dance, which is a fun thing where, like, because he's greeted by monks and then Miyagi sharpening a knife, which is pretty good. <laughs> that is inter- them going to prom is intercut with Miyagi taking the Buddhist monks bowling and they get into, like a bet competition with this shitty guy named Larry and they use their Zen techniques to bowl better than him. What yeah, the a, fuck? That's, that's movie? a wacky subplot to introduce. Like, it's it's wacky. And it's the first, it's the closest we've gotten to. This is overt comedy, but it, yeah. I also don't like that. The overt comedy is that the Buddhist monks are different than these people. <laughs> like the joke is that their Buddhist monk nature is what's making them good at bowling. And it's funny to see them bowl. And it's like, well, that, okay. Yeah, the early 90s were a weird time, man. We get this in, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja yeah, Turtles. Yeah, it does not age too, which is kind of a well. Thing. Yeah, like, this, like, yeah. Asian cultural tokenism sucks. But yeah. then, so they're at the prom, and they have a nice dance. Eric and uh, Julie have a nice dance. And then these, like, initiates into this, like, weird fascist high school guard security group karate school people... Bungie jump down from the ceiling and shatter a bunch of stuff in the gym and one of them breaks an arm as like an initiation and then Ned antagonizes them some more, follows them to Julie's house, breaks the windows on Eric's car, Eric drives to the docks where his car is doused with gasoline, blown up, there are flaming barrels and it's at night, he meets Colonel Dugan and his goons who do the bullring thing that Eric ignored and beat the shit out of him and then... Julie shows up, has a face-off with Ned, kicks his ass, and then Miyagi has to fight Dugan because Dugan won't let it go. Miyagi, in a really slow and awkward fight scene, because you can tell, like, he's old, beats him up, 
says that sometimes you got to fight people, and if you're going to fight, win, winks, and then the movie ends. And I said that really fast for a reason. It's because that's about as fast as it feels. Like, the yeah. movie just yeah, no, ramps totally up then. and fucking hits a wall and stops. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it ends super abruptly, and that's not just because I had I fell asleep and had to restart the end of the movie. Did you fall it's, asleep? Uh, oh, yeah, I did. Wild. Yeah, and um, I, so yeah, I checked tell, it out tell, again. I went back, and it was it felt just as uh Yeah, tell me a bit about how, what you thought about, like, that ramp up and the ending, because it's bad. <laughs> it, yeah, it felt like they were making this uh, movie. They were shooting it chronologically, and they were like, oh, dude, we forgot. This is a Karate Kid movie. We need a wicked fight scene at the end. I forgot all about that. Okay, all those bad guys we have, let's... uh throw them together put the love interest in there miyagi guy he knows karate let's have him do something and uh because we didn't plan on this we uh we we have nothing to put afterward but you know luckily this will work because we didn't write an ending otherwise so uh cool well and And then they fight it takes away from the message of the movie because like absolutely there's a message of the movie which is on the one hand it's like personal growth and like letting go of anger and like you know working through trauma but it's also like miyagi reiterates over and over and over that like fueling yourself with anger and being actively antagonistic and physically violent and emo- like emotionally violent whatever are not the answer and anytime you have to imp- like step in in a physical way is unfortunate and then he has to step in in a physical way which frankly he shouldn't have to the final moment of that should be given to julie because she's forced to do it, recognizes the unfortunateness of it, but still uses that growth to make a point towards people who had been antagonizing her, which would make sense. And then we could get like an epilogue bit with like her and Eric and like people having life plans and Miyagi says like a funny quip and then you end your movie, right? Like that's theoretically how that would go. Um, But then Miyagi fights Dugan, kicks his ass, says that, well, if you're going to fight somebody, you may as well win the fight. Winks. And it just fucking stops. So it takes everything that it's telling you about karate and its purpose and how it's benefited this one individual and could benefit others and just says, actually, just kick the shit out of somebody. Yeah. And why that's coming from Miyagi, I have no fucking idea. (laughs) Yeah, it's super indicative that this movie really doesn't have a point. And I think the stuff that is good in it, it it stumbled into being good and useful for a few few seconds yeah i think I the think performances has... carry a lot of that weight for sure sure yeah I, I don't think it has a reason to exist i don't think the filmmakers really had a reason other than hey uh, it's been a few years since we did a karate kid we need to pitch this movie what easier to way to get our foot in the door than to just change the male character to a female character and then we'll just make the movie from there and figure it out as we go along it sort of feels like um like how the the new ghostbusters came and went where it's just like Hmm. um where you know you sub it out you sub out a male for a female and um and then that kind of gives reason for the movie to be made because that's an interesting take and i'm totally behind that but then you actually you need to figure out something more than that in order to give the movie substance and i don't think that this movie did that i think this movie works for me enough in that you know on the one hand it's like there's a few jokes at the expense are just like wow girls are hard to understand which is like fuck off but like there is something to be said for like a difference of experience there between what like daniel would be like and what julie would be like and i do think there are flashes in this movie that 
validate that choice and make it so like it's not just interesting because oh it's a girl this time but like she's dealing with the kind of antagonism that a male character wouldn't because a lot of it's like weird advances that she doesn't want whereas i imagine like daniel's probably just gets like beat up a bunch so it's at least making an effort to kind of like make a difference of experience notable I think I'm like I think there are moments of it that stick the landing a little bit more for me, but as a cumulative experience, it definitely it's all over the place. Yeah, dude, it's the it's the Karate Kid four. You can't say that she's not a Karate Kid, right? That's true. She's I like, mean, even before the movie starts, she was already a she, Karate. She kid. had been a Karate Kid and continues to be one, and you can't say that she's not the next Karate Kid. <laughs> and she probably she probably kept it up too after the movie ends. Yeah. She is still a Karate Kid. Well, is she if, the if same this character is... in Million Dollar Baby? I was about to is make that no joke. I movie? was about to make that joke. I was gonna say, well, if, if you consider the next Karate Kid cinematic universe, and we fast forward to Million Dollar Baby, yeah, uh, she. I think that's a boxing movie, right? I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, she boxes, but. Uh... You know, she she's just like adapted older, her so fighting style over time. Yeah, there's a lot of time to learn boxing. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, you know, what we're saying here is good for Hillary Swank. Yeah. That's my big takeaway here. It's good for Hillary Swank. <laughs> um, we're going to tweet this out to you, Hillary. This yeah. is for you. And I think with that, uh, we would like to thank you for listening to our first annual 10th episode extravaganza of They Made Another One. And... Um, we are really grateful for everybody who's been listening. We've been having a ton of fun with the show and, you know, 10 episodes really does feel like a milestone. It feels like we're hitting a groove and we're excited to keep doing it. As we go on that journey, you can find us all over the internet on Twitter at they made another all one word on Anchor and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and all of that as they made another one. You can reach us via email at they made another one pod at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and what you would name the weird group of thugs that attend this high school. We will do our best to respond to anybody who reaches out. Liam, where can people find you? You guys can find my film writing, Alter Ego Graham, The Haunted Marshmallow, on Twitter and Letterboxd. My username is Graham Lamalo. Make sure you're following along all October because, uh, it's my favorite time of year. I'll be watching all sorts of horror movies and rating them on Letterboxd, talking about them on Twitter. And uh, we're looking to cover horror movies for October, you know. So um, now that we've got the next Karate Kid out of the way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be horror movies for a couple months or a couple weeks here on out. So keep in touch. And um, you can find me at Mr. Corey Price on Twitter, M-R-C-O-R-E-Y Price. Um, I don't have a letterbox that you can follow for all of October. Um, but, you know, you can find my musings and thoughts and feelings there over on Twitter. And with that, thank you once again from the bottom of our hearts for supporting us for 10 episodes. We're really excited to keep going. And with that, we will catch you here next time for more They Made Another One.